Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government, and with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, July 20th. We lost an American hero on Friday in Congressman John Lewis, the last surviving speaker at the March on Washington, who held off the effects of pancreatic cancer long enough to witness a social justice awakening from coast to coast. Anyone who met John Lewis in recent years no doubt walked away with a real sense of his genuine kindness. But he was also a fighter who dedicated his entire life to civil rights. So thank you, Congressman. And on a personal level, we'll miss you on Capitol Hill. On today's episode, Bloomberg government politics reporter Emily Wilkins joins us to discuss the second quarter fundraising deadline last week and what the Democrats' never-ending green wave means for November. And later, we'll break down a campaign ad on the airwaves. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Rose Jim. Jerome's Jim, my number of the week is 33.5. That's how many years that Georgia Democrat John Lewis, the legendary civil rights leader who passed away on July 17th, served in the House of Representatives representing the Atlanta area. Lewis was the most senior black legislator in Congress and one of its most highly respected members. His nonviolent civil rights activism, which Lewis called good trouble, included the Nashville sit-ins in 1960, when Lewis was a seminary student in Tennessee, as well as the Freedom Rides of 1961, addressing the March on Washington in 1963 at age 23, and the Civil Rights March from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama in 1965, when Lewis suffered a fractured skull while crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Lewis was first elected to Congress in 1986 and was a senior member of the Ways and Means Committee and a longtime advocate of voting rights protections and establishing what became the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington. And that's your Jero's Gem this week. All right, and up next, we're talking fundraising. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. So last week was a big one in politics. Jeff Sessions lost in the Alabama Senate runoff to Tommy Tupperville, as we expected. And a day later came the filing deadline for the second quarter fundraising reports. Joining us now to discuss the highlights is Emily Wilkins, who covers congressional leadership and campaigns for Bloomberg government. Emily, welcome back to the pod. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Greg. All right. So before we start, uh, I watched Jon Stewart's new movie, Irresistible, last night. Have either of you seen it? I have not. Not yet. No. No? Okay. All right. Well, it's all about political consulting and fundraising, um, and it takes shots at both parties uh, equally, which I really appreciated. So... Uh, anyone who loves or hates politics and the political industry, I think, will really enjoy this film. So anyway, want to throw that out there. You guys should uh, definitely put it on your list. Um, all right, back to business. Emily and Greg, you joined forces to write a story last week that focused on the 29 districts where a Democrat is seeking reelection and where President Trump won in 2016. What was the main takeaway? I mean, main takeaway is that things are looking really good for Democrats right now. Um, many of them managed to outraise, um, I think actually all of them outraised uh, their competition, Republican challengers. Um, a number of them have $3 million or more of cash on hand at this point. Um, we're just seeing really, really strong numbers uh, from, from these Democrats who are expected to be really vulnerable. And in some cases, they just have exponentially more cash on hand uh, than their opponents do. 
Yeah, that's right. When I was looking at the numbers, uh, you know, they were due July the 15th and we analyzed them last week. I think my first impression was what pandemic, because there was no slackening and fundraising for the Democratic incumbents in these toughest races. You really couldn't tell that uh, there was any sort of uh, decrease in the fundraising that you might have come to expect uh, because of the lack of in-person fundraising. Uh, House Democratic incumbents, we mentioned the 29 from seeking re-election from districts that Trump won in 2016. All of them have more cash on hand available to them than their opponents, which is not unexpected. Incumbents tend to raise more than challengers and have more money. But 26 of the 29 of them have a at least a 3-to-1 cash advantage, and 17 of them have at least an 8-to-1 advantage. So uh, the Democratic incumbents have a lot of money at their disposal as they go into the last three and a half, four months of the competitive general election campaign. Yeah, Greg, uh, you guys wrote, I think that um, the median was over $3 million on hand for these incumbents, right? And and, and for the challengers, it was like 350000 So, I mean, that is a huge discrepancy. Um, and that makes, and it's already hard to beat an incumbent just in general. And to, to face that kind of a fundraising discrepancy, it just makes it that much harder, right? It does. Um, you know, as you mentioned, $3 million is the median. So that's the midpoint of the 29 Democratic incumbents. The average was also about $3 million. Um, Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey has over $8 million. He's in a district that uh, mildly voted for uh, Donald Trump in 2016. So they're very well, uh, very well funded, of course. And, you know, if you're a challenger, you can overcome a fundraising disadvantage and beat an incumbent if you have the national political environment in your favor, if you have the wind at your back rather than in your face. But for a lot of these Republicans, so long as Donald Trump is a drag on the on the ticket and on down ballot Republican candidates, it's going to be very hard for them to unseat well-funded Democratic incumbents. And I think another interesting thing to note here is that in the time of coronavirus, you know, I've heard people say that you can make up for for a lack of money with more hustle. You can knock on more doors. You can meet more people. Well, no, you can't. You can't do that right now. And right now where it's more important to reach people through the airwaves and TV, I mean, these are the incumbents that really have the money to put their ads and put their name out there. And are there any specific examples of... uh districts where the Republican is just really way behind. I mean, like way behind. I I feel like you guys had a few in your story. Yeah, there are some out there. I'd say that, um, you know, a lot of these districts, you have Republicans who have just come out of very competitive primaries, which tend to drain your campaign funds. And so they need to uh, work to replenish their campaign treasuries to have uh, to to be able to wage a, a competitive top flight campaign. I'd point to a district like you know, New York's 19th district where Antonio Delgado has several million dollars in, in the bank and his Republican challenger who won the primary in late June has, I think, just over $4,000. So, I mean, that's not the type of campaign fund you need to beat a, a, a well-funded Democratic incumbent. That's one district. You know, New Jersey's 5th district, which I mentioned just a minute ago, Josh Gottheimer has more than $8 million, close to $9 million. And his uh, Republican opponent had to spend most of his money to win the Republican primary. You see that in a number of districts where Democratic incumbents, they avoided primaries, whereas the Republican challengers tended to have to win competitive primaries, which require money to win. I mean, I think another interesting thing is that sort of as now that we know for some of these districts who the challenger is going to be, 
it's going to be interesting to see if they are able to sort of get more funding, if the NRCC promotes these candidates a little bit more, if now that there's a clarity, the cash might follow there. But, you know, Kyla, as you pointed out, and, and Greg, some of these districts are just way, way, way far behind um, Republicans when it comes to, to fundraising against the Democratic nominee. Now, you talked about how the coronavirus didn't really slow things down. What did they do instead of these in-person fundraisers? I mean, how, how did they replace that? They just had virtual fundraisers and, and was something where I was talking with a consultant and she was like, you know, if I had suggested a virtual fundraiser before this whole thing happened, I would have gotten laughed out of the room. But everyone has just kind of embraced them, knowing, you know, what the situation is. We're all kind of in the same boat together now. So they've had virtual fundraisers. It's been more phone banking, more emails, um, more text messages. I mean, it's interesting right now because I think it really speaks to the strength of the potential and capacity for digital fundraising and just how strong and how prevalent that's gotten in campaigns that you can almost take the entire in-person element out and still see these really really strong numbers and i know we've seen we're seeing the same numbers over on the senate side you guys were writing about the house um but in the senate i think in the the five toss-up states um the democratic challenger outraised the republican incumbent um, so Democrats are, are doing better in fundraising on the Senate side when it's more challengers and on the House side uh, where it's incumbents. So just obviously the green wave is on one side of this thing. That's right. Our colleague Ken Doyle has a very good story about this on our website about.bgov.com news. And he reported that Democratic Senate candidates raised more campaign money than Republicans in the second quarter in nine of the 11 most competitive races. And in some of those contests, you have the Democratic challengers with more cash on hand uh, than the Republican incumbents. You know, Mark Kelly in Arizona, $24 million cash on hand compared to Martha McSally, $11 million. She's the Republican incumbent seeking uh, election there. Um, you think about, I, I looked back at the 2012 Arizona U.S. Senate election, and for the entire campaign, Republican Jeff Flake raised $9 million. Democrat Richard Carmona raised $6.5 million. Mark Kelly raised almost $13 million in one quarter, meaning he almost raised as, twice as much in one quarter than the 2012 Democratic nominee raised for his entire campaign. These are simply mind-boggling numbers that uh, these Democratic candidates are raising in some of these Senate elections. Yeah, it's impossible to put these numbers in historical context. They just... It's like three-point shooting in the NBA. There's just way more of it than there ever has been before, and it's not really fair to compare eras. Greg, anything else you want to touch on in this interview or Emily that we didn't get to? I mean, the one thing I think I wanted to mention a little bit is that even though everyone's fully expecting in-person campaign events to come back when conditions are safe to do so. There have been some really unique benefits that people have found from doing the virtual video networking. I mean, part of it is, is that you can have celebrities come and appear and it wouldn't have really been feasible or possible to have them come to an in-person event. Uh, if you are in a very blue part of New York and you want to support maybe say Kendra Horn in Oklahoma, you can go to her fundraiser without ever stepping foot on a plane. So there's a thought that um, even though in-person will eventually come back, that video, a virtual video networking will still remain a thing. That's right. And Trump clearly is really energizing Democratic donors. He has since uh, the moment he was elected. Um, and it looks like he'll continue to. 
All right, we will have to leave it there. You can follow Emily on Twitter at EMRWilkins. Emily, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, we're heading to Kansas. The rioting, the looting, the chaos. President Trump needs law and order on us. But disrespecting and ignoring the laws, Steve Watkins' specialty, charged with three felonies, including voter fraud. The FEC is investigating potentially improper donations to Watkins' campaign from his father. Enough scandal, embarrassment, and ignoring the law. Vote no on Steve above the law, Watkins. Fighting for Kansas PAC is responsible for the content of this advertising. That was an ad from Fighting for Kansas PAC, a super PAC targeting Republican Congressman Steve Watkins, who was charged last week with three felonies related to voter fraud. He faces a competitive primary in a couple of weeks. Greg, what stood out to you? Yeah, this ad really calls attention to the freshman congressman's troubles, which threaten his reelection in the Republican primary coming up on August the 4th. Uh, Watkins' toughest opponent, Kansas Treasurer Jake LaTurner, says that the party needs to nominate its best candidate and that Watkins, now that he's been charged with voter fraud, would be a flawed nominee in the general election against the well-funded Democratic mayor of Topeka. And LaTurner says that Watkins, who barely won this seat in 2018, could give Democrats control of an eastern Kansas district that usually votes Republican. Watkins has said he is confident of exoneration. Uh, the group, I would note, that paid for this ad, Fighting for Kansas PAC, is a super PAC that was created back in January 2019. It reported raising just $4,400 through the end of June, the most recent data we have available, but it spent more than $134,000 on this primary, so we don't yet know who provided the money in July to fund this anti-Watkins effort. Uh, but this Kansas 2nd District Republican primary, Kyle, is definitely one to watch on August the 4th, where you could have incumbent Watkins go down. Yeah, I think it's fair to say he's the most vulnerable to a primary loss uh, that we have left this season. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Now, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. But let's first review last week's question and answer. I asked, who is the longest serving woman in the history of the U.S. Senate? Now, some listeners here surely will get this right without multiple choices. But on a Bloomberg government Twitter poll, I gave you the choices of Margaret Chase Smith, Barbara Mikulski, Dianne Feinstein, and Nancy Kassebaum. Kyle, what is your answer? I'm going Mikulski. Correct. Barbara Mikulski. Served 30 years in the Senate from 1987 to 2017. Diane Feinstein, the California Democrat, is nearing 28 years of Senate service, as is Patty Murray of Washington State. Mikulski's 40 years of service in both chambers of Congress, including 10 years in the House, also is the longest tenure by a woman in history. So good job on that one, listeners, and Kyle. And now for this week's question, which I'm borrowing from my friend and colleague Amanda when we were playing some trivia a few days ago. What is the most common county name in the United States? Again, the most common name for a county in the United States. Now, you got to think it's named for someone important, but who? You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. 
We will reveal the answer and ask a new question on the next episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. But before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Kyle, today's a fundraising deadline for the National Political Party Committees and presidential campaigns to disclose their donors and spending for the month of June. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Down Ballot Counts was produced today by David Schultz and Adam Allington. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you soon.